One of the greatest inventions of mankind is sourdough bread. You know God was smiling when the first human being came up with that, right? Jesus was probably like, I've been waiting two plus billions of years for y'all to discover this. So enjoy, friends. I love sourdough bread. And sourdough toast with butter? Forget about it. Sign me up. Sourdough toast with butter. What a wonderful string of words. Can I get a witness? The angels in heaven rejoice every time a piece of sourdough bread pops up in a toaster. I was a vegetarian for a whole year once due to my frequent stomach issues, and sometimes I am for a week or two or a month at a time. But during that year, sourdough toast was my best friend. It's how I felt full. I was what people call a carbotarian. Sometimes I would eat four to five slices of sourdough toast for dinner just to feel full. And sometimes I still eat four or five pieces of sourdough toast for dinner. I mean, is that bad? It, if loving sourdough toast with butter and eating it as a meal is wrong, then I don't want to be right. You see, our mission here at Grace is this. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. And we believe that you can glorify and enjoy God as you eat sourdough toast dripping with butter for a whole meal. We want to ignite that passion in you to glorify and enjoy God everywhere that you go and in everything that you do, even when you gorge on carbs. And as much as I love bread and carbs, and who doesn't love carbs, you can't live like that and not expect some consequences. But the good news of the gospel is that you can gorge on God's grace with no side effects. Only good things come when you feast on God's grace. Only good things come when you feast on God's word and when you feast on the gospel. And so we have to deconstruct this idea that we have that gorging is bad When it comes to God's word, when it comes to the gospel, we can gorge. We should gorge. We can eat all the gospel carbs that we want to. And what we'll see today in 1 Kings chapter 16 is that to obey God is to feast, not fast. To obey God is to feast, not fast. Remember that the next time you're tempted. To obey God is to feast, not fast. When you're tempted, tell yourself to obey God right now, to obey Jesus right now is to feast, not fast. It's not to go without food and to go without water and be miserable. To obey God is to feast. Unfortunately, we sometimes think that God is holding out on us when he calls us to obedience. Listen, God is not holding out on us. 
He's not cheating us out of some wonderful life that we could have if we could just live our way. We tend to think that obeying Jesus and putting death to our sinful desires, we tend to think that's like giving up carbs. We think it's like giving up carbs and saying goodbye to sourdough toast. Ugh, that's no fun. Or we think obedience is like giving up sugar. Have you ever tried that? Cutting out sweets. You don't realize how addicted to sugar you are until you try to cut it out of your diet. That pain is real, isn't it? That's when you realize you're a junkie. And that's how some Christians think of obedience. It's like giving up bread. It's like cutting out carbs. It's like cutting out sugar, cutting out sweets. Like it will make you cranky and irritable if you follow God's commandments. But that's not what it's like at all. God is not holding out on us. He's not cheating us out of some kind of wonderful life that we could have if we could just live our own way. He made us. He knows us. He knows what is best for us. And to obey Him and to walk in His commandments brings life and peace and healing. It's like a feast, not a fast. It's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. It's all the sweetness that you can enjoy. In fact, did you know that that's what Augustine You know, one of the early church fathers, Augustine called Jesus, he called Jesus my sweetness. I love that. And so when we obey Jesus, our first love, when we obey our sweetness, it's like being a kid at Willy Wonka's. It's a feast. It's not like fasting. It's not going without. It's not, I'm miserable and tired and cranky and I can't wait until dinner because I'm starving because I decided to fast. To walk in the ways of the Lord is not like that at all. Rather, it's like a feast. It's a celebration. It's a party. And so we're going to keep looking at what we've been looking at over the last several weeks in 1 Kings. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16. What we've been talking about the past few weeks is that we want to see revival and we want to see renewal come to our families and come to this church and come to this city and come to the Central Coast. And if we want to see that happen We all individually have to start with our own hearts. We have to begin with our unclean lips. If we want to see revival and renewal come to our country, we, the church, have to repent. Not the world. We have to repent. Everybody wants to see our country change. Everybody wants to see revival come to America. Everybody wants to see revival come to their church. But are we willing to repent of our sins? Are we willing to get low before the Lord? Are we willing to get on the operating table and let him open us up with his scalpel and go to work cleaning out all of our junk? See, everybody wants revival. Everybody wants renewal. But nobody wants to repent in order to get there. Well then, 
we can't experience revival then or renewal. Revival and renewal comes when we, the church, go all in on repentance. And so who wants to go all in on repentance with me? That's what we want here at Grace and what we're doing in 1 Kings. We want to see what was missing from Israel and see what was missing from Judah and determine not ever to get to that place. We want to read God's word and see what was happening with all of these kings that we have been looking at and we want to say, we don't want to go there. We don't want to be people who avoid repentance. We don't want what happened with them to happen to us. We want to enter a new season of ministry here at Grace. Who wants to do that? Let's enter into a new season of ministry here at Grace where repentance flourishes. Who wants to go all in on repentance with me? That's what the nation of Israel desperately needed. They needed to go all in on repentance. But their leaders, the kings, did not lead out in repentance. Their leaders were not the chief repenters. That's what I put on my resume eight years ago before I came here. I said I wanted to be, and I still want to be, the chief repenter in this church. That's what church leadership should strive to be. Not know-it-alls, not have all the answers, but chief repenters. Those who grieve over their sin because they know their hearts. It's what the kings of Israel were called to be. But instead, they disobeyed and they provoked the Lord to anger. So we continue with this sad story that we started last week, the the sad episode of this string of Israel's kings who neglected and ignored God's word. As we saw last week, nothing good comes from stiff-arming Jesus and saying la, 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 la to his word. That's what these kings did. So we want to look at two more kings today and another fellow and use them as a mirror to have our own hearts exposed, have our own hearts opened up so that we can start down this path of renewal and start down this path of revival so that we can leave the status quo behind and start to get some traction here so that we can experience gospel renewal here in this church and in this city. And it starts with God's word going to work on our hearts. And so, let's be open to God's word this morning, okay? Let's go all in with Jesus. Look at 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to begin with verse 21. And I might say Omri, and I might say Omri. You'll see. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganoth, to make him king, and half followed Omri, or Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. 
For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omrah that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. So after King Zimri, or Zimri, uh, sadly took his life that we looked at last week, and as the smoke over his house is, is still there, we have two guys, Omri and Tibni, who want to duke it out over the throne of Israel. And so the nation of Israel almost splits once again, but Omri's crew beats out Tibni's crew, Tibni dies, and now Omri is the king. I mean, this is politics in the ancient Near East. You want to be king? Just kill somebody. And so King Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as if all the stuff that we have seen over the last several weeks was not awful enough, the text tells us here that Omri stepped up his rebellion game. He too provoked the Lord. Omri followed in the steps of Jeroboam. He was another falling domino that started all the way back with King Jeroboam. And so we need to pause and be reminded that it doesn't matter what sin it is, the consequences of our sins can linger for generations. Our sins can affect our families for generations. Jeroboam's sin should sober us because you can end up like Jeroboam and end up influencing every Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Tibni, and Omri that follows you. That's sobering. Omri did just what Jeroboam did. He exasperated the Lord. He tested the Lord's patience. He provoked the Lord just like all those before him. Omri succeeded in pushing the ever-merciful, extremely patient Yahweh to the edge. Omri simply drove Jesus up the wall. And all we know about King Omri is that he beat up Tibni and company so that he could become king. And he built up Samaria. He beat up a guy and built up a city. That's it. Twelve years and that's all we get on this guy. All we really know for 12 years is that he provoked the Lord to anger because he walked in the ways of King Jeroboam. What we should be reading here is that Omri led the nation of Israel to wholehearted worship of Yahweh. We should be reading that he helped give the nation their awe of Yahweh back. As king of the nation, that's what he was called to do. And that's what we're supposed to do. If we want to see revival and renewal come to this church, we have to get our awe back. We have to comprehend and confront and confess our sin. Then Jesus will show up in ways that will absolutely knock our socks off and leave us flabbergasted. And you know what? He's already started. He's already begun this. We're beginning to see that even now, aren't we? Let's keep welcoming into our lives. Let's, the traction that we're getting and renewal here at Grace, let's keep going. Let's stay low before the Lord and say, come and change us. And I'm going to be selfish right now since I have the mic. Would you pray this for me? Would you pray that I would comprehend and confront and confess my sin? 
Would you pray that I would increase in my awe and wonder of Jesus? Would you pray that I would remember that to obey God is to feast, not fast? Pray for me that I would remember that to obey Jesus and walk in his ways is like feasting with close friends. Pray that I would remember that to live according to my own kingdom, which I do every day and which I'm really good at, pray that I would remember that to live according to my own kingdom is like fasting and going without food and water. See, when we all live for our own little kingdoms of self, it's draining. It's depleting, isn't it? And pray for your elders and church staff that we would hunger for God's word. Don't think that just because we are in leadership that our hearts can't drift. Pray that we would love God. And love his word. Pray that your elders and staff would love God and love his word and want to obey it. Pray that our awe of God would increase. Pray that we would taste and see that the Lord is good every day. As the king, Omri should have been doing this, but he disobeyed God's very clear word. As king, he was to be the moral compass of the nation, leading them and guiding them to worship of Yahweh. He was called to commend the awesome glory of the works of the Lord to the nation, and he didn't. Instead of giving people back their awe of Yahweh, Omri led them into more and more idolatry. And if you think Omri failed miserably at this, Wait until you see his son Ahab. Look at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab stiff-armed the word of God too. He disobeyed, just like his daddy. He saw obeying the Lord as a fast. It's like, who wants to do that? Ahab lost sight of God's glory. He was even more evil than all the other kings before him, and they were pretty evil. And as if it was bad enough that Ahab walked in the ways of Jeroboam, he married a foreign woman, Jezebel a non-Israelite, a Sidonian. And then he started going to church with his wife Jezebel. And what was that like? What was church like for the Sidonians? What was it like for his new wife Jezebel? Well, the Sidonians worshipped Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was the goddess of the moon and sensual love and fertility. And in the ancient Near East, Ashtoreth and the Canaanite god Baal were lovers. I mean, look at them. Aren't they a cute couple? Bless their hearts. Baal on the right was the god of thunder, 
lightning, rain, and fertility. And the Canaanites believed that whenever Baal and Ashtoreth were intimate, then the rains would come down and water their crops. But the Canaanites, the Canaanites did not believe that you just wait on Baal to send rain. They didn't believe you just pray to him, say, please send your rain down. They didn't believe in let go and let Baal. They believed that people should encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to be intimate by being intimate themselves. And so the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution. They would have prostitutes available at the shrines so that you could worship Baal and Ashtoreth by engaging with a prostitute. This is what King Ahab, the king of Israel, is doing. He erected an altar for Baal and built Baal a house or a temple or a shrine, a church if you will. The text also tells us he made an Asherah. These Asherah poles were shaped like male reproductive organs. And so hormones had replaced the heart in Israelite worship during the reign of Ahab. Instead of being wholehearted, the majority of the nation is whole hormoned. I say the majority because we'll see in chapter 18 that there is still a small remnant who is faithful to Yahweh. But understand that Ahab didn't replace Yahweh with Baal. He just added all of these extra gods to Israel's worship. So they still worshipped Yahweh at the temple, but Ahab built new places and added new gods to be worshipped alongside Yahweh. They worshipped Yahweh alongside Baal and Ashtoreth. This isn't just limited to the ancient Near East, though. We see this all the time when people want to belong to Jesus. They want to call themselves a Christian. They want to be a part of the church, but they want to live the way that they want to live. People want Jesus, but they don't want him to be strict and exclusive. They want to add stuff to Jesus. That's the spirit of Ahab and the spirit of of Ahab is alive and well today in churches. Maybe you saw this because it was making the rounds on social media last week. There was a seminary that had a chapel service last week where they all gathered and confessed their sins to plants. Plants. This is not a headline from the Babylon Bee. This really happened in a seminary, in a chapel service. Here's what they said. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Answer, nothing. I confess my sins to Jesus. How did they get to this place? Answer, Jesus was not enough. The gospel was not enough. God's word was not enough. This is just the spirit of Ahab trying to add, confess your sins to plants alongside confess your sins to Jesus. This is offensive to Jesus. Anytime we add anything to Jesus, 
he is offended. Anytime we add anything to God's word, he is offended. Anytime we add anything to the gospel, he is offended. Really offended. Anytime we ignore God's word, we're on the path to Ahab loves Jezebel and Baal loves Ashtoreth. Anytime that we ask Jesus to endorse our rebellion, we're being like Ahab. Anytime we see obeying God's very exclusive word as optional, it's optional for the Christian. Anytime we think like that, we're in trouble. And that's what we see in verse 34. We get this closing note about another man who stiff-armed God's word and it cost him a few of his sons. Look at verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. The phrase there, in his days, is not referring to the man Hiel, it's referring to Ahab. It was during the days and the reign of King Ahab that Hiel tried to rebuild the city of Jericho. But what's the big deal about trying to rebuild Jericho? Well, if you know the book of Joshua, there's a very clear warning given by Joshua in Joshua 6.26 after the destruction of Jericho. It says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. There's a, a clear word of warning in God's word here, and yet Hiel felt the freedom to rebuild Jericho. After all, the culture that Ahab had created gave Hiel the freedom to openly defy God's word. And then danger came knocking on Hiel's door. The open defiance of God's word cost Hiel two of his kids. And this shows you just how sick with sin the human heart is. One of Hiel's sons died as soon as Hiel met with an architect to draft plans to rebuild Jericho. You would think this would be enough to give him pause and lead him to repentance and cry out for mercy, but it doesn't. Hiel goes through with his plans, and then another son dies. He built up his own little kingdom of self, and it cost him two of his kids. What a sad paragraph. Ahab and Hiel absolutely lost sight of the weightiness of God. They were no longer moved by the sheer grandeur and beauty of the Lord. They defied God's word, and it was tragic. We don't want to lose sight of God here at Grace. Obviously, it can happen. It happened to the nation of Israel. It happened to the nation of Judah. We don't want to be like Omri, Ahab, or Hiel. We don't want to plug our ears to his word. We want to be a church where people feel the weightiness of God. Where people discover God for the first time, or maybe they're rediscovering God. Where they encounter the Jesus of the Bible. And so let's be a church 
that welcomes Jesus and welcomes his glory and welcomes his weightiness. Let's have the courage to welcome Jesus and let him restructure our lives. How about that? What the nation of Israel needed was renewal and revival and repentance. Well, how does renewal come? How does revival come? We're talking about it. We want it. How does it come? It comes through repentance. How does repentance come? From seeing Jesus high and lifted up. I mean, what happened with the prophet Isaiah? He saw Jesus and said, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. How does repentance come? Seeing Jesus high and lifted up in all of his glory and seeing Jesus laying down his life for his friends who just so happen to be people with unclean lips. See, you can't plan renewal. You can't plan revival. And churches try to do it all the time. Revival here next week. Don't think so. You can't plan it. And you certainly can't get there by being cool and hip. The Holy Spirit does not respond to swagger. Churches today think that. If we're cool and hip enough, the Spirit will respond. No, sinful human beings might respond to how cool and hip you are with all of your swagger and fog lights and laser beams in your sanctuary. Sinful humans might respond to that. I doubt highly the Holy Spirit will. He doesn't respond to swagger. He doesn't respond to cool and hip. The Spirit doesn't show up because we're the coolest church in town. He responds to repentance, not swagger. So let's start making repentance and confession of sin even more of a central part of our ministries here at Grace. In your ministries, whatever ministry you're involved in, whenever whenever you're gathered, carve out some time for repentance. In your meetings, in your Sunday school classes, in your small groups, let's pause and confess our sins. That's crazy, isn't it? Let's begin repenting and just start confessing your sins to Jesus out loud in front of the group and repent and collapse on Jesus. And that's really all repentance is. It's just collapsing on Jesus, saying, you're my only hope. I need you. I'm needy. It's putting God back at the center of our lives. And if we do that, Jesus will show up. Do you want that? I do. And do that in your family too. Parents, start leading out in repentance. Let your kids see you own up to your sin. If we do this, I promise you Jesus will show up and renewal will come and nothing could be greater for us than to be wonderfully disrupted by the power of this hope. Nothing could be greater for us than to be wonderfully disrupted and awakened out of our slumber by the power of this hope that He will show up, that the Spirit responds to repentance, not swagger. Jesus is worth 
the upheaval. He's worth having your world turned upside down through repentance. Will you welcome him? And when you're tempted to give in to your darling sins, remind yourself that to obey is to feast, not fast. Walking in the ways of Jesus is like getting to eat all the carbs and sugars that you want to, and it's actually good for you. See, some people think obedience and repentance is like eating liver and sauerkraut and drinking prune juice. But it's actually life and peace and health. And you know who knew this best? Jesus did. Jesus loved obeying his Father. But what will make us want to walk in his ways? What in the world is going to make us want to walk in the ways of Jesus? What motivates us? What stirs our hearts so that we want to obey? You probably know the answer, don't you? What is it? Come on, Grace. (laughs) The gospel, right? You're like, it's not going to be that simple. It is that simple. (laughs) The gospel. (laughs) It's that simple. The good news that Jesus loves us and died for us and came back from the dead, that he forgives us and he gives us his righteousness. God has made it so easy for us. It really is the answer. The gospel. It's why we talk about it all the time here. Because good news motivates a good diet of God's word. Listen, I was in a funk yesterday. I was in a bad mood. I was irritable. I was cranky. And I was listening to the, the Reformation Network app the, from Ligonier Ministries, RefNet. And part of their Ligonier statement of Christology about Jesus came on. They came up with a, a statement on, on the God-man Jesus. And it just started playing as I was listening to it. And it was talking about Jesus loving us and dying for us and he's the God man and all this. And all of a sudden, it was like uh, the, the heart shocker things just ugh, out of my funk hearing about my Savior. It's that simple because we're that dumb. God's made it very simple that even your children can have their hearts motivated to obey when you remind them about Jesus. Jerry Bridges said, there's an important lesson here for all of us. Genuine love for Christ comes through one, an ever-growing consciousness of our own sinfulness and unworthiness, coupled with two, the assurance that our sins, however great, have been forgiven through his death on the cross. Only love that's founded on both of these foundations can be authentic and permanent. If we find we lack love for the Savior, one or both of these prerequisites are deficient. When we've truly experienced the gospel, far from producing a why bother to grow attitude, it has just the opposite effect. It motivates us to lay down our lives in humble and loving service out of gratitude for grace. So if we welcome Jesus to upend and totally restructure our lives, guess what? Revival will come. Renewal will come. God will come to church. But where does it start? Repentance, conviction, confession. But understand, you can be convicted of sin and not healed. 
You might be convicted of some sin right now. The Spirit of God might be pressing on your heart like when you press on a bruise. You feel it. You can feel that and still not be healed, still not repent. And I'm sure all of the kings that we've been looking at felt that at some point, probably a lot. So how do you let that conviction of sin lead to healing? You have to look again to Jesus. It's the gospel. You have to look away from you and look to him. What what did the prophet Isaiah say? By his wounds, we are what? Healed. We have to look to Christ crucified for sinners like us. That's how conviction comes. That's where repentance comes from. Don't seek repentance. Please, don't seek repentance. That's not the answer. Seek Jesus, and then repentance will come. Repentance will follow. Conviction will follow, because it's his what that leads us to repentance. His kindness. Where do we see his kindness most clearly? It's at the cross. Conviction of sin is God's love coming in and washing its hands and scrubbing down and putting on the gloves and saying, scalpel. And then tenderly and cautiously and meticulously cutting us open and getting rid of the infection and the disease in our hearts. It's life-giving. We don't often see it that way because who wants to be convicted of their sin? That means we have to face our sin and see who we really are. Who we really are. Not who we project to everybody else. Not who we think we are. They think I'm this way. They think I'm great. No, Jesus is like, I see it all. Face who we really are. And that's no fun, is it? There's embarrassing stuff right down in here in our hearts, isn't there? Conviction of sin is having to wear that outfit that the hospital gives you that ties in the back, but people can still see your rear end. You're exposed. That's conviction of sin. Exposure. All of your heart laid bare before Jesus. Is it embarrassing? Yes. But that's when the healing starts. Ralph Davis says, and this is one of God's best gifts to you as a Christian, to give you an overpowering and increasing sense of how total and filthy your corruption is and how deeply tangled and devious you are. What has all this to do with service to Christ? Simply that God always begins with the servant. And whether you are serving with a mission in Kenya or serving by teaching school in Dingwall, you must begin with your own unclean lips or you won't be fit to serve anywhere. So understand this, Grace. The biggest obstacle to our renewal as individuals and our renewal as a church is that we feel healthy. And and we are healthy as a church. I think we're the healthiest we've ever been. But if we think, well, we're not that bad... We don't confess our sins to plants. We're not that bad. We're not that out of shape spiritually. But we're much sicker than we know. And we can see and understand our sickness by seeing how life-giving and rejuvenating God really is. When we see who He is and how life-giving He is and how life-giving His renewal is, then we really begin to understand that we're sicker than than we thought. And so when we read this passage, we're tempted to think, well, I'm not like King Omri, and I'm not like King Ahab, and I'm not like Hiel, 
But when we look at Jesus and we see his holiness and we see his mercy, we see how reinvigorating he is and how much more he has for us and that he's better than anything we can imagine, then we say, call me Omri. I'm changing my name to Ahab because I'm more like him than I realized. I'm just like Hiel. That's when renewal comes. When we see how invigorating Jesus is and how life-sucking and depleting our sin is. When we come to grips with just how sinful we are and can be and just how welcoming Jesus is. That's when revival comes. That's how renewal comes. That's why we've been hammering this home week after week. Because we want to change. We want renewal. And that's how it comes. When we come to grips with just how messed up we are and we run to Jesus for healing. And the good news of the gospel is that in spite of how messed up we are, Jesus welcomes us. That's amazing. He invites us to his feast. He invites us to the feast of repentance, the feast of confession, the feast of obedience. He welcomes us with open arms while holding a scalpel in his hand. Listen, Grace, God is offering us himself. He says, I'm here if you want me, take me. Our relationship with him is meant to feed our hungry souls. Jesus is the deep answer to the deep hunger that we all have and feel. And when we forget this about Jesus, we start thinking this way. I don't need God's pesky rules. What does he know anyway? I want what I want, and by golly, I'm going to get it. That's our struggle daily. And so the devil comes to us and he says to us, as he said to Adam and Eve in the beginning, as he said to Omri, as he said to Ahab, as he said to Hiel, the devil whispers to us, God is not good. God's commands are unreasonable. He must be holding back on us. But that couldn't be further from the truth. God is good. His commandments are good. He's not holding back on us. He's actually offering us himself. And so to obey is to feast, not fast. God is not holding out on us. His commands are not unreasonable. The question before us today is this. Will we humble ourselves and listen? Will we take God up on this two-way relationship of love? Will we respond to His love with love? Will we let Him feed our souls with the gospel of His Son? Will we enjoy this dynamic two-way relationship with the God who made us and knows us? Will we allow God to talk to us about our sin and our guilt and our weakness and our blindness? Will we allow the Holy Spirit to show us from God's word that we are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need? Will we comprehend, confront, and confess our sin? Freedom comes when we do. We show that we are friends with God when we let his word do its work in our lives. When we let God's law expose us and when we, when we let the, the gospel relieve us and free us from condemnation and remind us that God loves us unconditionally and with no strings attached. And so to all who are running on empty this morning, are you running on empty? You're just kind of puttering along or maybe you've been feeding on the junk food of this world and you're like, oh gosh. I, I went through a whole bag of Doritos, of the world's Doritos, if you will. 
Or maybe you're just rummaging for scraps. Or maybe you're just pretending that you're okay and deep down you know you're not. To you, Jesus just says simply, come. Come to the gospel feast and eat and drink and be merry and be satisfied. So let's repent our way to revival. Let's repent our way to renewal. Let's go all in on repentance. And let's welcome Jesus to totally upend and restructure our lives. How does this happen? We've got to look to Jesus. We have to let his kindness lead us to repentance. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. We're amazed that you would live a perfect life enjoying obeying your Father and die a brutal death for people like us who at times don't enjoy obeying because we enjoy our sin. And that you would invite us to this feast. People like us, we're amazed. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. We want to take you up on your offer. We want to go all in with you, Jesus, and we want to see you change us. So would you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit? In your name we pray, amen.